On this week's episode of the Marketing Expedition podcast, Joe Polish said that Joe DiMaria is known as one of the top course creators on the planet and has unique talent with taking expertise and packing it. Joe DiMaria started his career at just nine years old, running an illicit back alley soda and candy cartel at his elementary school in Willow Glen, California. And of course, within two weeks, he had employed three other hard-nosed, dirty-faced nine-year-old lieutenants, paying them just 25 cents per unit sold. The Sugar Rush Syndicate was brought to an abrupt end when Di Maria's childhood best friend and wartime consigliere was caught selling an A&W root beer on tape by one of the school's CCTV cameras. <laughs> he was brought to justice just five weeks into the school year, netting an impressive $937.75. He refused to return the money. And now you're going to hear a whole lot more from Joe. But first, it's time for the marketing essentials moment, the basics that you need to help you build your brand and your bottom line. And this week's topic, we're going to share all about how to accelerate your word of mouth advertising, or as sometimes I like to call it, world of mouth advertising, because now it's all over the world that we do business with each other and can from all the way to Ireland to Iceland to Nampa, Idaho, right? So world of mouth advertising, and I want to share with you some things that you can do to help accelerate the number one best way to get new business is by word of mouth advertising, right? Word of mouth and sharing and getting those referrals. So what can we do to accelerate it? How can we trigger those moments when people want to talk about you to other people and ideally in a good way, right? Uh, So here's some things we want to think about. Reach out and reconnect with your loyalists, the people who are your loyal fans, the evangelists, your your loyal fan who wants to share all about you because they're just in love with your product or your service or doing business with you, right? People want to do business with those that they know, like, and trust. And so building trust is a major factor in being able to accelerate that word of mouth advertising. Uh, So reconnect with them, reach out with them, and then of course reward those who will refer you, recommend you, rank you, rate you, (laughs) and celebrate it wildly online to the world. Let people know about the fact that you reward those who talk about you and want to continue that word of mouth advertising. It's a ripple effect. When one person talks about you to 10 people, then those 10 people can talk about you to their 10 people, and it continues on and on and on. Other things you can do is delight your current customers, the people who are already purchasing from you. What can you do that's going to be unexpected that they can then talk about and share with their friends because they they had like a surprise or they were delighted by something that you did or said or, you know, acknowledged them, right? So check in with your current customers. Ask them about how their day went. Ask them about their daughters and sons or granddaughters and grandkids and all of the, the, the people that surround them and who are important to them. Learn about them. Become friends with them. They're not just your customers. They are people who buy from you, right? They, they, are your, they can be your friends and you want to learn from them. 
and you want to understand what's going on in their world. What kind of concerns or problems do they have that, that maybe you could help them solve? Be resourceful. And then they're going to they're gonna know to come to you, the expert in whatever it is that you're an expert in, because you will be the one that helped save their day or solve their problem or even, you know, gave two shits about them, right? You, you, you are genuinely interested and concerned and humble with your current client base, then they're going to continue to be your advocates and want to continue to help you build your brand. And then, of course, uh, think about ways that you can reconnect with them on a consistent, ongoing basis. Uh, And then the more that you can, can support them and help them and be available to those who can love on you and help share your brand, the better you're going to have accelerating that word of mouth advertising. What can you do to help them? And then in turn, they're going to want to help you. And then ask, continuously ask what it is that you can do to make your product or service even more valuable to them than what it already is. Sometimes those ideas that come from your customers, just the sheer fact of being able to listen to them and hear what they have to say can seriously put you above the competition. They're going to become loyal because you gave the time of day to them. And so give them incentives to interact with your brand, with other people, encourage them and to get them to engage and like and share and tweet and speak about you and post about you. What can you do to reward them and incentivize them to do that? Maybe, uh, you know, if they retweet this or reshare this or hashtag this, then you can enter them for a chance to win something or you can even reward them by simply being a parent online and talking about you and, and continuing to incentivize them on an ongoing basis because if they continue to refer you, then you want to continue to reward them. And of course, uh, other things that you can do is give them bonus codes or just different things that kind of make it special and make them feel special so that they can make your brand special too. And create wow-worthy service or a project or something that they can talk about. Give them something to talk about, like that song. Give them something to talk about. Uh, If you've got something that you're working on that's going to get that wow factor in front of them, shout it out. Let them know and let them shout all about it too. Pay attention to who those influencers are on a regular basis. Who is it that is shouting all about you and who are you getting your recommendations and referrals and rewards from? And then make sure that they continuously want to do it. Make sure that you follow through. If they've given you a referral, make sure that you follow through, right? You want to make sure that you do the best that you can do so that they continue to want to do it even more. And make it super easy for them to talk about you. Give them some talking points and give them some triggers, some natural triggers. Pay attention to what those triggers are. How are people talking about you and why are they talking about you? And then make some more triggers easy for them to talk about. Those talking triggers can really help fuel that word of mouth advertising that we're talking about. And think about what we're, what we're going through in this day and age, the unprecedented times that our generations have seen, all of the things that are happening right now. What can you do to help ease people's pain or their burdens or concerns? Are you being socially conscious? Are you being inclusive? Are you doing things that are going to sustain where we're at and having sustainability? And what kind of movement can you be a part of? Be where your people are at. Be concerned for them, with them. And they're going to want to buy from you 
because you are a part of them. You're empathizing with them. You're stepping into their shoes. You are where your people are at. And if you're not, then get there. Where are your people? (laughs) Where are your customers buying from? How are they finding out about you? Understand what it is to be able to continue And of course, those follow-ups are very, very important. The reconnections. Ask somebody to coffee, cocktails, conference calls. Heck, maybe we can even go to Cabo. (laughs) All of the three C's that we want to think about when we continuously reach out and be in touch with the people who matter most. Other things you can do to help accelerate that word of mouth advertising. What kind of co-opetition can you have or uh, co-op partnerships? If you are partnering with somebody that's uh, got a similar audience that you do, maybe you're not competition with them, but maybe you both have the same type of audience. Now, what can you do to partner together? Do an event, Do a bring a speaker in that has relevancy to your audience. Then And what it does is it basically doubles your reach because now all of their people who are influencers and love their brand now are exposed to your brand and vice versa. All the people who love your brand now are also exposed to the partnership. So now power in numbers, right? And being able to accelerate that word of mouth really can help when you partner and do any kind of event or co-promotion or whatever the case might be, it's super helpful. When I put on events, we always do culture and brand camp or we do new marketing trends for the new year. I absolutely love having other speakers in our industry come and be a part of it. Even if it's a, a like or a industry that's, you know, similar and who we're targeting, maybe not competition necessarily, but people that we want to expand our network to, that they want to expand their networks too. And so partnering with these people and being able to give them all of those easy trigger points to be able to share and spread that news to all of their audience just as much as ours. It's great. But yeah, be where the people are at and be where you want to be to meet them. Then you're going to be able to help accelerate that word of mouth. And then, of course, don't forget or just simply remember to ask for those referrals from people you know that are your loyalists. Ask them. Ask them. Don't be afraid to ask for those referrals. And again, if you want to take those people to coffee cocktails and have conversations or conference calls, (laughs) Do it together. Sometimes I love to be able to, when I refer somebody, I want to have the two people I want to meet in the same room, and then I can introduce both of them. And then what it does for me is it makes me very resourceful and they want to come back and maybe they even want to return the favor to me, which is awesome. It's a reciprocating function, right? Givers, go-givers to give more. And then ideally it'll come back in abundance. So helping you and your tribe continue to accelerate that word of mouth advertising or otherwise known as world of mouth advertising. Hopefully you got some tips from this. We're also going to write a blog post about it. So be sure to go to the marketingexpedition.com to get the full information. And there's a lot more that you can learn from this. So, but without further ado, let's get into the interview with Joe. You guys are in for such a treat. Here we go. Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast, an auditory journey through the latest in marketing, branding, and advertising. Now, here's your Marketing Expedition Guide, Ray Allen. 
Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Allen. I'm the president and CEO of Feppershock Media and the founder of the Marketing Expedition Community. And today's guest, we have Joe DeMaria. (laughs) Say your last name for me, Joe. (laughs) DeMaria. DeMaria. I like the way you did it better. Oh, you know, I, I'm just making up names now. <laughs> you and telemarketers, those are, you guys I know, always right? nail it. That's how I know if somebody uh, doesn't really know me because they say, is Rhea there? I'm like, no, no, she's not, right? Ray's here. <laughs> so well, you, mean, you Joe, can empathize. Yes, exactly. Why don't you tell our audience a little more about you and just your background and just all the fascinating things about why and where you came from and how you got to where you are now? That's a long story, but um, you know, I'll, I'll give you the short-ish version. Uh, there's sort of two chapters of my career that have kind of uh, developed on their own. And, and the first half was starting an agency when I was 18. Um, I moved back to the Bay Area from New York and started working with tech companies. This is back when we were still, you know, whispering about Web 2.0 and how that was going to change everything. Um, so that was a little while ago. And then as I worked with more of those companies and I got, you know, keyed into people at at PayPal, or I started meeting higher end entrepreneurs that I would work with like Damon John and and people like that, my business started to shift on accident and I became really responsible for heaps of companies stepping into online education. Um, And I'm not talking like, you know, Udemy and kind of these little grab bag edutainment things like masterclass. I'm talking really using education as a strategic initiative so that they could build better relationships with their customers so that they could train employees better. And after I did that for a few years, I actually created my own online learning methodology um, that's now used at a bunch of universities like the California State School System, the UC System, Cornell University, um, Portland State, Oregon State. There's, you know, uh, the Los Angeles Unified School District. So you know, those two chapters of my career in marketing and in education have kind of come together now um, with some of the new things I'm working on. So that's, that's kind of my, uh, my background. Lots of fascinating things to uncover and unpack and discover. But I want to know kind of you, you, before we started recording here, you were saying that you have scaled companies from 1 million to 50 million and done some pretty amazing things. Let's get, let's just dig right in and, and share a little bit more about some of the things that you did to help make that happen. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, I think my career has been marked by many happy accidents and, and good bits of timing and good mentorship. And so one of the things that I've gotten to see a lot of over the past decade or so is just being involved in companies that are stuck at that one to 2 million mark. And they just keep hitting their head against the ceiling. Like nothing they do ever gets them through that wall. They might have, you know, the year where they decide to double what they spend on advertising and they might hit that ceiling and immediately regress back to where they were, or they might decide to hit the road and start speaking everywhere. And they might get through the ceiling for one month and then they're right back under it. You know, they just, they can't break through. And a lot of the companies that I've been involved with, by the time I get there, they might've had their head against that $2 million ceiling for 20 years. Now, you know, the, the interesting thing is as I've gone through and worked with all these different people, I started to realize that there's a genuine sort of flow chart, like a, a decision tree really that we can follow um, that shows us where we get stuck. 
and so when we talk about what happened at that company that went from 1 million to 50 million, um, it, it's really, it's simple stuff. You know, the first thing is understanding, you know, if your business model is actually empowering you to be successful, or if you just chose it because you saw other people doing it. I'm looking at you, continuity uh, marketers, and you know, it, it, if you don't have a business model aligned to whatever the strategic intent of the company is, it's very hard to be successful. Then there's the assumptions that we make, right? So if we're making assumptions and we are now not really with our finger on the pulse of what our customers want or, or what our prospect is looking for in the market, we can make very expensive mistakes that stop us from scaling. Then it gets into monetization. Now, really, really interesting for me, having been involved with a lot of companies now, is everywhere I go, everyone's focused on monetization first, right? Everyone wants to know how to make more money, how to you know make more sales, how to sell a higher tier of client or, or, or become more profitable per deal or, or whatever. And the reality is every time I see companies that are stuck at that one to 2 million point, it's because they are almost universally too focused on the monetization side and they don't have architecture to actually support it. So we call that the difference between growing and scaling. Mm -hmm. Companies grow to death all the time because they don't have a scalable architecture to sustain it. So that's something that when we go through all these transformations with different companies, like, you know, we've, we've done that with law firms, with healthcare practices, with, um, you know, any number of things. Almost universally, everyone's so focused on the actual conversion that they're not looking at how do we support that throughout the entire architecture of the company. Can you give an example of uh, an architecture strategy or what you call what you were saying? What What's an example specifically of something that you helped do to, and I like what you said, so that a company doesn't grow to death? <laughs> Yeah, of course. Um, I'll give you an example of one from last year. Um, a friend of mine is a very successful intellectual property uh, attorney, but over the last 20 years, he'd never really broken past that, you know, 1.5 million mark. He'd been very stable, very successful, very well respected. He's not lazy. He's a good marketer. He invests incredible amounts of money in growing the business. He pays the right people. He brings the right people in. By the books, you would say that this person should be past that number. They should have, you know, beat the ceiling. But year over year, he would get to the mark where he's on pace to break that 1.5, I think, which was, was his ceiling. And it would all look good and it would fall apart at the last minute. Or he would be way short of it all year. And in the last quarter, all of a sudden things would click and he'd hit 1.5 million. Like no matter what happened, it was just that number over and over and over again. So when I went into the company, one of the first things that I looked at was not the monetization, which is originally actually what he wanted me to look at. It was the model. Was the model allowing him to be successful? Okay. If the business model's right, then we have to look at the offer strategy. Is the offer strategy allowing you to be successful? So for example, if he's an attorney, and this is a silly, you know, obviously a, a silly ex, uh, example here, but if you're an attorney and you're trying to do a free plus shipping offers to, to build your, your book of business, it's probably a bad strategy 
right? It's just the wrong offer structure, the wrong methodology. Um, if you're trying to do cheap, like low dollar service and you're competing against LegalZoom, that's probably a bad strategy. So what we did is we wanted to reposition him as a more premium brand, which he already was, he just wasn't conveying it. And we rejigged his offer structure to be what we call um, a halo model, which is a four tier offer structure. And the reason we did that was to introduce more profitability per deal so that we didn't have to close more, you know, more deals by volume. Right. We were just more productive with the, the leads that we already had. So rather than spending tremendous amounts of money on marketing, which he'd shown does not work for him as well, we just rejigged the architecture of the front end of the business and let it run. And he grew 54% for the year, which is the first time that has ever happened for him. Wow. And uh, to grow a law firm 54% in one calendar year is unheard of. So you know, that was just a system um, as simple as rejigging his business model a little bit and changing his offer structure so that he could reach the goals he'd set out to do. Right. Because usually lawyers only bill by the hour and you're kind of tied to the, you know, the dollar that you make within those hours. So uh, by creating offers and content, right, he served up content that people could download and pay for. Is that right? Yeah, what we ended up doing is uh, we created four, four tiers that ended up being packages. So they were flat rates working with an attorney rather than the typical hourly. Uh -huh. And we brought in a salesperson instead of just having folks call into the office and our reception staff chatting with them. We actually brought in a, uh, you know, a guy from Lehman Brothers formerly who's a business strategist and he became our sort of head of sales. And we started generating leads sending them straight to him mm -hmm. and just using a very, very low touch um, sort of consultative sales cycle. So in a month or two, we completely transitioned the way the business works to be totally different from the way all of our competitors were doing it. Mm -hmm. And it felt much more premium, much more bespoke. And we were able to charge a much higher price for the same level of service, which made us more profitable without investing more money in, you know, any of our, our normal human capital or marketing resources. Right. So how did you go about getting the leads then that, that were coming in? When, when Walk me through that a little bit on how that all worked. Well, you know, my, my background as a marketer has always been in, you know, advertising and, and sort of digital marketing. Uh -huh. What we see a lot of is with these businesses, especially brick and mortar companies, um, always are underutilizing things like SEO and localization strategies. So that was a huge factor for us is building a better localization strategy. So we geofenced off the tri-state area and we geofenced off, you know, um, air, things that were within a few miles of the offices that we had. And we went and really got focused and targeted. We brought in SEO uh, experts to support that and make sure that we'd localized a lot of our pages. And then we turned around and we built um, very purpose-built sort of middle of the funnel campaigns that were designed to reach a more mature buyer. So we, we didn't quite want the person that came in saying, you know, I think I have an idea. Um, can you help me? Because that person's more likely to go to a legal zoom anyway, and our mm -hmm. prices were a little too steep for most of them. 
So you kind of so self self selecting. I mean, they they have to self select right away. Absolutely, yeah. We we want the people that are asking questions like, well, can I patent an algorithm, right? Or or how do I actually profit from a patent? Those are a more mature set of buyers rather than people that are asking things like, can I do a patent myself? Mm-hmm. So all of our SEO is targeted at a more um, mature level of conversation, so that when we did drop people in on that front end, they kind of were already raising their hands and interested in what we had to do. And then the other thing is we abandoned the free consult that everybody in the industry gives. And we moved instead to an IP planning session, right? It's a, it's a basically an intellectual property planner and you're meeting with an actual licensed business strategist, um, which is our salesperson. And he actually goes through and talks to you about the business plan and tries to help you understand how to profit from this thing before you ever actually pay us. These are differences in customer success that have completely changed the makeup of their business. Hmm. So I think this is good information for people that are listening and kind of trying to go through their marketing journeys and maybe they are stuck. Maybe they are trying to get past that wall that they keep running into and, you know, like you said, beating their head against the wall kind of thing. What kind of advice would you give, uh, you know, what's the next steps that they need to take to to break through and in and either work with you or if they are trying to do something to move beyond that? What, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, I, I would say the first thing is always taking a look at what our overall business model is, right? I mean, I, and well, I would take it back even, even further than that. The first thing is really understanding what your vision is for this business. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I walk into companies where the only, literally the only reason they're not growing is because nobody knows what the definition of growth is at that company. And everyone's working against each other or they're just biting off more they can chew uh, because they just don't have a, a really clear vision of where they're supposed to be. Now, if, if I ask you, Ray, like, what's your vision for 25 years down the road? Mm-hmm. Um, and you start telling me you want 10,000 employees and you want, you know, uh, you want to own a building in Manhattan and, and this, that, and the other thing, I, w- I would just ask you, Why? Right. What is it? What does it fundamentally do for you to reach those goals? Because if you can pick very clear goals, like where you want to be in 25 years, mm-hmm. you can work backwards and understand what your gap is. The, the biggest issue for most of us with vision is we can't, you know, like we might know where we want to be, but we have a really, really big gulf of understanding between what life is going to be like in 25 years and what are the component parts of, of actually getting there? What are the milestones? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With our clients, I always say, where do we want to be in 25 years? What's that going to look like in your personal life? I don't, you know, you can do a lot with 10,000 employees, but if your goal is you want to have a $2 million home in Lake Tahoe and you want the business to be automated and you want to spend time with your kids and you want to take up paddle boarding, Um, you could do that with less than 10,000 employees. You could do that without owning a a building in New York. So why make that part of the goal, right? The business has to solve a problem for you, the entrepreneur, or you will become burnt out and you will be bored by it. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather you focus on your personal goals. And then I'd say, where do you have to be in 10 years in your personal life? What life do you have to be living to know you're on track for 25? What life do you have to be living in five to know you're on track for 10? 
And where do you have to be in three years to know you're on track for five years? What I end up looking at is the difference between three years and today. That is our gap. That's what we're looking to solve. Everything else will self-align, but that three-year window is such an important thing for entrepreneurs to look at because in three years, that's on average how long it takes to sell our companies, right? From the moment we decide to sell to the moment we actually walk away is typically around three years. Three years is basically a season in entrepreneurship, right? Um, that you'll, you'll go through three-year windows all the time. It's kind of an evolution cycle for the average small business. So three years is a perfect window. If you can establish where you need to be, now you can start looking at your business model and saying, is this the right model for me to employ to get to that three-year number? And, you know, I think uh, it's crazy to think that people would want more employees like that to do all, all, the, all the work yeah. that needs to get done when you can automate things and, and set yourself up for success with the efficiencies. And by, by the way, right now, I just don't even think it's feasible for us to get 10,000 employees because um, everyone, it was, you know, <laughs> there's not the employees that are available, right? We're going through this crazy, great recession or uh, resignation and, you know, people are job hopping and all of the, the recruitment efforts that are going on, it seems like it's a, kind of a volatile situation for people to be in. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole reason automations become such a big deal is because we want less human capital, right? I mean, human capital, I, I'm, I am always a humanist, but like <laughs> people are variables. That's what makes them wonderful things. Um, and it also makes them a threat to to a lot of business owners that need incredible amounts of manpower. If your goal is you want to have a thousand employees, there's almost nothing you can do with a thousand employees that you couldn't do with half of that in automation. I mean, a, a lot of business goals that entrepreneurs have are frankly vanity goals. You tell me you want to make $10 million a year. I'm going to ask you why, mm -hmm. right? Because Listen, if your goal was that $2 million house in Lake Tahoe, you could probably do that with a million dollar a year business. Mm -hmm. So why are you writing down that 25 years from now you want a $25 million business? You, you need to have really, really clear understanding of what your life needs to look like and how the business is going to serve you. What job are you hiring the business to do? Otherwise, you're wandering the desert for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it really fascinating because the different generations that we're now seeing, you know, mass exodus of people who are retiring, retiring early, you know, maybe not wanting to work the same way that they worked before. And then the younger generation, they have a different way to work. And so we're seeing quite the, you know, interesting times with, with all of the, the workers that are available to us now. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is something that I'm extremely interested in, I've invested a lot of time and in, in money in is, is sort of where the market is going, you know, whether that's the employee market, the actual labor market, whether that's the actual uh, academic market, you know, are people going to invest in college, all these different things. I'm, I'm a really big education person. Mm -hmm. Funny coming from a, a college dropout, I know, but, um, you know, I've done a lot of work over the past, let's say, eight or nine years with different institutions to improve the way they do online learning. And one thing I can tell you is that really the, the future for, for your marketers, mm -hmm. the future of marketing is 150 years old. 
<laughs> it's, it's, you know, education marketing. If you can go all the way back to the earliest advertising in the 18, you know, 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and almost universally, historically, the best campaigns of all time were all education focused. The reason was before the internet, and I, I think we've all been really seduced by internet marketing over the past 20 years, but before the internet, the biggest thing that we could do is relationship building, right? I mean, we, we wanted to win incumbency in people's homes, and we did that by building a bond. Mm -hmm. When the internet came around, all of a sudden, we had the ability to play a volume game that as marketers, we'd never had before, and we got seduced by it. So we started making lower tier offers and trying to win five, $6 at a time with these microtransactions. And when you're doing that and you're, you're making $6, you, you don't need to build a bond to have somebody pay $6. Mm -hmm. So we moved away from relationship, but now with COVID, I mean, you said it yourself, COVID has really shifted the perspective that buyers have, right? But pre-COVID, for as long as I can remember, we were always advertising along the tone of lifestyle, you know, freedom, um, you know, feet in the sand, laptop on the beach. Like it, it was always about personal liberty, personal freedom. Mm -hmm. Umbrellas in your drinks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. totally. But then during COVID, you might have even seen this, but there was a huge article that came out. I forget who did the study. It was probably like McKinsey or somebody. But over $500 billion in advertising was spent during the first few months of COVID. And the message immediately shifted away from those things, like, you know, toes in the sand marketing to trust, safety, helping others. Right. You know, nationwide's on TV telling you, we, we're with you in this tough time. We know how hard it is. We're going to get through it together. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Oh, the emotional connections. Yeah, absolutely it's a shift to customer bonding. Same thing happens with now education. Mm -hmm. You have all these employees that are getting displaced by automation. They need to be reskilled. You have all these students that are no longer going to attend university because they've lost faith in the system. Right. The way for you as a company to win, whether you're a small business or you're a, a massive company, is to invest in becoming an, an education leader uh, for your actual customer, your prospect, build an incumbency that is built on more than just, you know, price and velocity, which is sort of what we've done for a while and actually invest in the people that you intend to hold as your clients for the future. Yeah, I think that there is definitely something to be said about the thought leadership and, you know, even doing these podcasts and getting the opportunity to interview and meet other people and listen to what they have to say and, and vice versa, like being it out there sharing this information has been a great tactic to take. And it's had some residual side effects from people hearing, you know, people on or interviews on my podcast and they, you know, get new business from it or they, they get more interest or learning from it. And, and for me too, I mean, as I get to meet people every week and, and talk to them. So I think that there's definitely something to be said about being that thought leader, being the speaker or author or, you know, a coach that can go on a stage and get that expertise because of what they're doing and how they're sharing it. Right. Yeah, of course. And, and I would take it even past just thought leadership. And I would challenge you to be action leaders, 
Um, you know, one of the things that I think has been sort of anemic is as marketers, when we think about customer education, it's always like a blog or a white paper, or, you know, it's, it's a video that we made on loom. Mm -hmm. The, the reality is people don't want to necessarily learn about how to use your product. They want to learn how to actually build skills. Now that can encompass using your product. But overall, if Adobe wants to win, so I'll give you a good example, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're familiar with Canva, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Canva, when they came to the market, they have a very famous pitch deck. I would ask pretty much anybody that's interested in raising money, like we're raising around for one of our companies right now, mm -hmm. um, to go look at Canva's pitch deck because there's a really wonderful slide in there that shows the basically the uh, a pyramid of the market and Adobe is playing for the top 10%, professional graphic designers, professional videographers, yada, yada, yada. And Canva is saying, look at this 90%, the rest of the market that has no graphic design background, no mm -hmm. video editing, no whatever. These are the people we're going after. The DIYers, the, the do-it-yourselfers. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, this is why that's really interesting. Adobe has much bigger reach. It's got a much more uh, hardline. It's, I mean, just a much more developed software package. It's, mm -hmm. it's a big company that can afford to, to nurture people. You would think Adobe would be able to win that battle. The difference is the speed of innovation today means that smaller companies like Canva can move faster and be more responsive to customer need than big companies like Adobe. But here's where the rubber meets the road. If Canva and Adobe are going to war, the person that wins that war is the person with the better customer bond. Right. Now, what's a better way to do that? To just teach people how to use Adobe or teach people how to use Canva in a tutorial? Or what if you made the Canva Academy for, you know, graphic design, and you did a small educational thing that allows people to learn how to do this stuff that they would maybe traditionally learn in a university, right? but you're showing them under your brand, under your umbrella, using your product. Who do you think they're going to stay with? If you give them the skill, they will stay with you. Yeah. No, I can definitely tell you my team, you know, it goes back and forth about Canva and, you know, whether we want to support it as much as we because we obviously do adobe products and have because it's as you said you know it's like the more professional what you know trained and and you know schooled graphic designers use but you know but then again half the majority of the people who need it will go to canva because they can and it's you know simple but they don't necessarily have the design background or the understanding of, you know, all of the different components that go into a design and why, why it's like what we want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, you're talking about at a small scale, exactly what the biggest challenges for companies all over the world are right now. So like I'm, I'm uh, in discussions right now with probably the number one and number two agency holding companies in the world, right? They, they own thousands of agencies and their big challenges are, hey, you know what? Whenever Google makes a change to their algorithm, we need to re-educate thousands of agencies on how to, how to use this new thing properly. We need to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. Google 
has their own challenge on the other side of it that they don't want to be in the education business, right? Google's actually removing a lot of their services around education because they just want to be the software provider. They do not want to be the educator around it. Right. Yeah. Well, it creates sort of a vacuum because for the most part, you're now putting, Google's putting the pressure of you, of, of like understanding how to use Google products on companies and companies aren't adequately prepared to do that. So what ends up happening is the first company that has an alternative to Google suite or any of the other tools that can actually build something that educates people on how to use it properly, they win incumbency, mm-hmm. right? They, they can now come out and say, like, let's say um, the, the game is Slack versus Teams. If Microsoft Teams comes out and does a whole Microsoft Academy on, you know, internal uh, communication, mm-hmm. right? Or how to be productive communicators and work from home. And we're using Teams. Mm-hmm. Every single project manager, every single operations person that's struggling with work from home right now and trying to redesign the way their company culture works, if they're taking that through Microsoft Teams, guess what tool they're going to use? Teams or Slack? They're going to use Teams and they're going to be loyal to Teams because Teams gave them a skill, not just a tutorial on how to click a few buttons and add some people. Mm-hmm. You know, this is... This is the future. Every, every company has the opportunity to do this big and small, to be an action leader and to help your customers, your prospects build real skills that make them more confident, more capable buyers, because no one wants to feel foolish. So if we can give them capability and we can give them confidence, we have something that will allow us to outcompete people, even if they're much, much bigger than us, even if they're much, much more organized than us or financially, you know, mm-hmm. more uh, competitive. And, and that really is how you break through those ceilings, early doors. Now it's time for a message from one of our partners, Kitcaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand? And Kitcaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. We've had several guests from Kitcaster on the Marketing Expedition podcast as well. So if you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time to explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from their staff of communication experts. Kitcaster is your secret weapon in podcasting for business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com slash expedition to apply for a special offer for friends of this podcast. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about course creation because you have obviously done a lot of this for for your yourself and for your clients and and you know being named as one of the top you know, content creators, course creators, right on the planet. I want to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, people who might want to go uh, and create their courses. Tell us some some things that you've learned along the way that could be useful for our listeners. Oh, totally. I'll, I'll give you a couple really big things. Um, and by the way, you know, when when Joe Polish said that about me, I was as shocked as you are. So, <laughs> I <love> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I accidentally got into online courses. Like I said, a lot of our marketing clients in the early 2010s wanted to start dabbling there. Um, and I worked with a lot of online marketers and now you can't 
close your eyes and, and swing your arms in a circle without hitting 40 online marketers that have courses. Right. So, um, you know, the first thing I'll say is if your goal is just to make a course to make money, stop. Okay. There's, there are so many considerations to actually doing this successfully. And if you're just, you see someone on LinkedIn advertising the, how to make a course plan, um, or they're on Facebook advertising the, the, the checklist of things to do, mm-hmm. stop. <laughs> the, the first thing you have to understand is again, why are you doing this? What are you hiring the online course to do? Mm-hmm. Right? Because most of us, you know, I can give you, I'll rattle off a few mistakes, but most of us, we're just making the thing because we see other people that are successful that are doing it, but we don't realize that that is a pillar to their Parthenon. There's 50 other things that have to be stable for that to work effectively for them. And you're going in copying the front end of something that's, you know, incredibly complex and you're wondering why it failed. Mm -hmm. So here are the key mistakes, right? If you want to jump into um, the, the world of content creation as a, as an educator, right? The first thing is doing your research. I cannot tell you how many people I have worked with and big and small, right. And, and I'll say this lovingly about, you know, Joe Polish's team, Damon John's team, all these different, amazing folks, they come to us knowing what they want to, to make. And then we have to tell them gently that they need to set that aside because I don't care what they want to make. I want to do the research and see what their customer needs and decide if we are in integrity to teach that, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to just make whatever we think is important because that's when sales tank. That's when marketing is totally misaligned with what the customer or the prospect wants. And we end up with a very, very expensive ornament that just sits on a shelf somewhere. So wait, how do you go about finding out what your customers want? Do you do a survey? Do you do like focus groups or what, what is it that you typically do? You're you're opening a whole can of worms here. Okay. So I'm going to (laughs) say something that is going to make people want to fight me on site and I'm okay with that. (laughs) Um, If you are spending money on surveys on focus groups, or you're spending time on interviewing customers or prospects, you are wasting your money. Um, so I'm, I'm prepared for the salvo of hate <laughs> on that. Um, but the, the reality is by doing any of these things, you are inherently biasing the results you will get, right? If you put a bunch of people in the room to try your products and to tell you about it, you are inherently getting a less honest result because of well, what essentially boils down to like observer effect, mm-hmm. right? In, in quantum physics or quantum mechanics, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is the more we're interacting, right? The more like the higher touch, like a focus group or a survey or whatever, the more stimulus we're injecting into it. We are always changing the feedback we get, mm-hmm. which is why so many of these companies spend millions of dollars on market research and they push something out into the universe and it totally flops, right? Mm-hmm. So the way we do research instead has to be extremely light touch. Mm-hmm. It can't be coming from this, this area of stimulus. It has to be secondary research, not primary. Incognito. Okay. <laughs> Incognito. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah. You want to be the fly on the wall, 
what we end up doing is we start looking for where does their ideal prospect go to have open and honest conversations with their peers or where they have community. And if we can find that and they have anonymity, we have way more likelihood of the, the data we're getting being accurate, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if we're not pushing a stimulus into the market, we're much, much more likely to have a, our finger on the pulse. And ever since we made that change, you know, our, our conversions on landing pages, on funnels, on email marketing, our completion rates on courses, our uh, retention rates are all up massively, right? The average online course um, in, the, in North America, at least, I can't give you anything from, let's say, Europe or something like that. But the average online course here, and this includes academia, which is terrifying, but the average online course completion rate is somewhere between 10 and 15%. Oh, I can probably uh, be a part of that percentage too. I've started a whole bunch and never finished them. So sure. yeah, we all have, right? <laughs> I, I'm proof. <laughs> yeah. we. I mean, I've got a million that are sitting in, in a hard nope. drive somewhere. So, um, you know, the, it, it's between 10 and 15%. Okay. Ever since we made those changes and we make sure that we're doing research to know what the prospect wants instead of just what we feel we need to force into their hands. Mm-hmm. Our completion rates are between 60 and 70%. That's better. That is better. massive. Yeah. So by asking them what they want doesn't necessarily get you the information you need. It's about having those conversations and being where they are at and then being able to, you know, kind of be the detective to uncover what it is that they need and then bringing it to, bringing it to them. Yeah. If, if you marketers, I mean, you're all a bunch of nerds too. So <laughs> yeah. what we do um, from a, a, a tactical standpoint is we go in and we collect hundreds of direct quotes from conversations that we've been on a, a fly on the wall of. And we're looking for things that they're celebrating, things that they're lamenting, right? Fears, failures, frustrations, misconceptions, pains. Mm-hmm. We're looking for solutions, wins. Um, we're looking for environmental stuff. So what they see and hear, right? Maybe that's you know, they, they see Tony Robbins with the $32 million course launch. Okay. That's external, but they might also see their friend who put $20,000 into video production and never launched their program. So we want to know how they're making that decision. And all of these different things become a behavioral language pattern that your buyer uses to make buying decisions. Wow. We use those to determine what are the two or three biggest pain points. And then we ask very simply, we ask our client, which of these three can you solve most transformatively? Because that becomes the crux of the product line. Yeah. And what are some of the tools that you use to create these courses with that you've done that have been really successful for you that you've got the 70% completion rate? (laughs) So I'll tell you that I'm actually pretty tool agnostic. Um, I've been doing a lot of testing on that over the past few years. And I don't think there's any tool itself that gives you more juice than any other. I'm sure there's some that allow you to do things like uh, assessments, you know, Kajabi will do assessments. Quite a few of them can do little things like that. Mm-hmm. There's a couple that allow you to gamify. The, the reality is the success or failure of your program actually happens in the course architecture, not in the platform. So the way you design your curriculum Mm-hmm. completely is determinant of your success. Everything else is window dressing. Hmm. Gotcha. 
So it's all about how you put it together, not necessarily on what platform, but the way it's delivered and absorbed and finished and completed. Correct. Right. I mean, it's, it's all a root decision. So, you know, the, the only thing we can control is what happens in the development. Everything else, once it passes out of our hands, it, you're, you're relying on the behavior of your user. So if you want to make that process slower or shorter, I should say, you, you need to understand your user. Well, I can give you a great example of this, which is, you know, every single one of you, when you sit down and think about making an online course, you probably open up a, a Google doc or you pull out a piece of paper and you start making an outline like a college essay, <laughs> right? You, you, you're thinking of it like chapters in your book and you start looking at that stuff saying, okay, well, I would, I would need to do this. And then here's all the things that go under that. And, oh, here's something that I need to throw in there because I forgot it. You end up getting caught in outline hell <laughs> and constantly adding things, removing things like the, the floors of learning and development par, uh, departments all over the country or entrepreneurs offices are covered in crumpled up pieces of paper with horrible outlines on them. Well, that, and you just don't want to number anything because if you do move things around, uh, you're re-editing, you're redoing. <laughs> totally. And, yeah. and, that, and that's the thing, you know, when I work with people on the, um, like the curriculum side, on average, by the time they get to me, they've been working on this for two years without making progress. Mm -hmm. I can believe that. <laughs> two years. Yeah. They work with us for three to six months and they have something live in the market. So it, it's not a function of... You know, you don't need like Joe Polish always quotes this. I, I forget whose quote it was, but he says, you don't need the the brains of an Einstein, the the muscles of a Schwarzenegger, the refle uh, reflexes of a Grand Prix driver to solve a problem. You simply need to know what to do. Right. And the reality is the minute you go into outline hell, you're starting to think like a lecturer. You are not thinking like an educator. You have to build skills throughout the progression of the program, mm -hmm. not just lecture to people, not just cover off topics. If you are not engaging in skills-based learning, mm -hmm. you are going to be one of the many that are stuck at that 10 or 15% completion rate. Right. And it's going to be boring because it's not going to be anything people are going to want to continue. Every single one of us that has been, you, like you went to college, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Okay. What percentage of those classes actually influence what you do every day? Oh, gosh. I mean, clearly not all of them. I mean, I think that there was a geology class that I'm still wondering why I had to take. <laughs> I mean, it's important for me to know about geology, but it's not what I do every day. Exactly. When was the last time you stumbled across a sedentary rock, right? It's, <laughs> I know. Uh, or, what is it? Sediment? I don't even know. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah. <laughs> which shows you exactly how useful that class is. But I guess it could come in handy if it's geography, because I, then I know how to geofence a specific area. Yeah. Right, right. But then we have Google Maps. So yeah. who cares, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the thing is, there's all these things that you had to do to get a degree that were not germane to what you wanted to do as a skill or what you wanted to do in your life. Right. And those things just derail your process. They ruin your enthusiasm as a learner. And the only reason you might get through them is because there's social pressure and stigma around not going to class or not getting the degree, right? You can't just skip things in the liberal arts education, unfortunately. But when it comes to online learning, there is no lecture hall full of students to hold you accountable. 
there is no sort of group dynamic that kind of keeps you focused and locked in. There's no professor right in front of you Mm-hmm. making eye contact with you with the threat of making you answer a question or trying to force you to, to raise your hand. Or in my case, make, making sure that they turn their cameras on so that, you know, if we're doing a remote class, I know that they're listening to me. Totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I teach I teach local, a marketing class locally, so I'm very familiar with uh, <laughs> the that scenario that you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so like as soon as those things are gone, yeah. All of a sudden, the the lecturer, you, Ray, in this case, you lose all of the power and positioning you had that gave you authority to teach the boring stuff. Right. right. Now you're competing with Facebook. You're competing with Instagram. You're competing with YouTube. You're, hell, you're competing with, I hate to say it, but you're competing with Pornhub. You're competing with all <laughs> these companies to try to get TikTok. them to move through your course. Yeah. TikTok. Do you know, I just discovered this the other day, TikTok. If you go down a TikTok rabbit hole and you're on it for too long, TikTok will tell me to get off TikTok. <laughs> You've been on here too long. Get off. <laughs> to tell you to take a break. Exactly. I know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So <laughs> anyway. you know, you're, you're, you're fighting a losing battle right. if you're getting in there and you're trying to lecture, right? So a lot of the universities I've worked with, they'll have historically talented professors, incredibly high pass rates, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, like amazing legends of educating. But you go there because you know you're going to get a lecture and you know that that's the atmosphere in the position that you're put in. Whereas like you're saying, yeah, go ahead. Well, and, and the the crazy part is you can have these like storied professors that have been there for 30 years teaching the exact same thing every day and getting incredible results. And they move to online learning for COVID, trying to teach the same thing the same way. And their their pass rates drop. Their their dropout rates shoot through the roof mm-hmm. and their uh, their test scores plummet. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a transition that we need to make from being lecturers to actually thinking about how do we process everything we're doing as skills-based education, because that is the only way to get people to path through something. It's when they know that, okay, the next lesson here is going to build on what I just learned. I'm going to be able to do something with it and take it away. Like there's, there's always a next thing to do. Um, online lectures are just too episodic, right? It might be like taking a series of 50 webinars Mm -hmm. instead of just slowly developing the skill. Right. Okay. So one more question for you. Um, Joe, tell me if you had an opportunity to go back in time and tell yourself what you know now that you wish you would have known then, what would it be? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think if I knew now what I knew back then, I, I would have started using other people's money faster. Um, you know, I, I spent the last 10 plus years bootstrapping everything and, and self-funding. And uh, you know, my, my latest jump back into the startup world, which I never thought I would do again, <laughs> is now as uh, you know, I'm like the number two or number three person at this, this company and we're raising you know, four million. And the fact that we could just walk in off the street and raise 4 million as easily as we have is just absurd. And I think about the years that I spent trying to bootstrap building team and bootstrap all the marketing and, you know, wearing 50 different hats. Uh, It's absolutely incredible that 
it's just, it's this easy to go use other people's money to do a lot of those things. So I think that's a, a valuable one. The, the other one I would say is just to really get good at building companies that would have been successful in the sixties or the seventies without all the technological help we have, mm -hmm. because then when you walk in and you have all these tools at your disposal, building real transformative businesses is a hell of a lot easier right? So I, I'm a big fan of studying people like Jay Abraham and things like that, that, that did such amazing work in the, in those decades where they didn't have all the tools that we have. Right. Could you imagine if they had what the tools that we have now? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very, I think all of us are really, really lucky that Jay does not know how to use any of this stuff because I, I don't think anybody would be employed anymore. I mean, he's, he, th these Titans that have been around, uh, technically the skill wise are still so advanced and what they do is still so far beyond a lot of what we're touching today mm -hmm. as internet marketers. I, I'm endlessly fascinated by people like Jay and, and all of these, uh, these different famous copywriters and direct response guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how can people get in touch with you? And you know, if you, if I said, okay, you can say anything you wanted to say, what would you say right now? Well, I, I, I'll subvert your question and replace it with something really simple, which is if I could say anything to any of you, I would say that your chief goal as marketers should be to empower the people that are your end users. And if you think through that lens, you'll always be more successful, right? Whether that's education, whether it's customer success, whether like whatever it is, if your job is to be an empowering group you will find more success and you will find more incumbency in your marketplace and you can outcompete and outwin. Um, well, you can outcompete and win. You can't you outwin go. anything, but that would be what I would say. Now, if you want to find me and if you want to hear about any of this stuff, we've kind of touched on maybe the tip of the iceberg for a lot of the way this process stuff works, but um, you can always go to teach to scale.com or you can go on Instagram to at get more Joe. Um, and I do, you know, a lot of little teaching sort of segments there. Um, we're starting a new podcast, which is going to be really fun. I'll be interviewing a lot of my friends like Joe Polish and people like that, that are sort of titans of the entrepreneurial and marketing world. Nice. Um, and we're going to talk exactly about what I call the, the process here. You know, how, how do you make anything more predictable, more sustainable, more profitable? Um, and that's, that's where we are. Awesome. So what have you named your podcast yet? Uh, it's toy problems, toy problems. Yeah. Okay. Toy, toy problems. It's, it's something that I started. Uh, I mean, if you, if you have, I'll, I can explain the name at least very quickly. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, toy problems. It, it's something that when I was in Silicon Valley, I felt like I was really stuck. Like I, I couldn't progress anymore. I felt like I'd stopped learning. I, I think most entrepreneurs, have felt that way, you know, just burnt out. Like you, you're not making progress anymore. And everything I did in my business just felt automatic. Like I, you know, not to be arrogant, but I just felt like a black belt at what I was doing and I was kind of bored. So I was trying to find a way to, to get back into creativity. And I decided to do something. There was this like Japanese philosophy thing that I read one day. I, I wish I could remember where I saw that. But it was this idea of doing one thing every year that is so unbelievably difficult 
the very nature of having completed that thing changes the other 364 days. Nice. And I said, wow, okay, that's, that's really interesting. What I wanted to do was I wanted to take, uh, take a semi-pro fight that year. I'd never done, um, like mixed martial arts. I'd never done boxing. I'd never done anything. All that stuff scared the crap out of me. So it was something incredibly hard mm -hmm. that I figured if I could achieve this, it, it's going to change things for me. So that was the first one that I did. And I put a ton of time into it. And I found that as I was learning how to do all these new things again, I was, I was re-sparking those creative learning parts of my brain. And I would, I could get my butt kicked the night before and solve a problem I've had for six months in the office because wow. I, I had this plasticity back or something. So I, I came up with this idea and I wrote a lot about it called toy problems where we pick things that are inherently difficult that we're going to be total novices at where we're totally okay with failing. And we have very low expectations because it re sparks our creativity and it allows us to solve more complex, more difficult uh, problems in areas of our lives where we, we might've been sitting with them for years. And so the Toy Problems podcast is, you know, me going and, and sitting down with world-class entrepreneurs and business people talking about what are the things that, that they've done um, or that they're working on, what are the, the barriers they've hit and, and how do they respond, right? How do they stay in creativity? How do they, they find those different bits of challenges that help inoculate themselves against what are truly the ups and downs of entrepreneurship or, or business? Um, I'm, I'm way more fascinated in people than I am in, in hearing like, you know, the, the 500th take on how to do this particular Facebook ad strategy. So I'm, I'm always interested in how the world-class performers maintain that for years and years and years. Cause you know, as well as I do that, you know, 97.3% of all businesses go out of business within 10 years. Right. Maybe even sooner than 10 years, too. <laughs> the the five-year number is 93.6. Yeah. Well, and even I would, would like to see the, the numbers now that we're after this, um, you know, pandemic and restaurants and people are just struggling, uh, not because they're not getting the business, it's because they don't have the staff to do it or the supply chain or all those types of things. So, yeah, I'd imagine it well, absolutely. go quick. <laughs> absolutely. Well, the, you know, the crazy thing, and this should be encouraging for anybody listening, while the market and the economy has been very strange for the past couple of years, mm -hmm. the rate at which new businesses were started has gone up almost 70% yeah. from when COVID started to now. Yeah, so. people losing their jobs and starting a business or quitting their jobs and starting a business or any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And long-term, that's going to be amazing for, for the economy itself. And it's going to really change the way the labor market works. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's probably going to take a lot of power out of the hands of universities and place it into the hands of employers like you guys. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, it's a, it's a heck of a way to start really rebuilding what you want your company to look like. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting time to see what happens in the next couple of years for sure. 
Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your wisdom. I just kept going because you had lots of fascinating things to say. So no, yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> That's great. And uh, now um, when you do your show, Toy Problems, then um, you'll have to reach out and I would be happy to be a guest on your show too. That way we can cross promote, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely do that. We'll definitely do that. Excellent. You better have some, you better start creating some fun problems then. That's right. That's right. I'll have to, I have some ideas in mind, so (laughs) that'll be awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. And for all of you listening, until next time, everybody, enjoy your marketing journey. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. Want to continue the journey? Don't miss out on new episodes. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wouldn't it be great if there was one place you can go to get all the latest information and tips about marketing and advertising? The Marketing Expedition community is that place. People like you gather in our online community to build relationships with others and find the latest marketing trends, tactics, tools, and technology. We help you build your brand and your bottom line. Start your adventure today. Visit themarketingexpedition.com to find out more.